This is an ABC podcast. This is Science Friction. Hi, I'm Natasha Mitchell. Вы слышите, как собака, бордер коли по кличке Виски из города Берген в Норвегии. And this is Dr. Ilya Kolmanovsky. He's host of one of the most popular Russian language podcasts. And he calls it or Naked Mole Rat. Great name for a podcast, hey. Although in Russian, the direct translation is someone who digs earth uh, as, a, as a work. Yes, a naked road worker. Most people think that this is inappropriately dressed road worker. Uh, inappropriately undressed, I would say. He likes to play on words. He also likes naked mole rats. It's a mammal. It's a tiny rodent, um, originally from East Africa. They live up to 30-40 years, and for an animal that size, you wouldn't expect it to live more than a couple of years. And um, they don't have cancer. They have very unusual social structure. They live like ants with queens and workers. And biologists study these wrinkly, hairless, buck-teethed little critters in part to understand how we humans could also live long, disease-free lives. For Ilya, who's a famous Russian science journalist, teacher, uh, he's a biologist, performer and podcaster, the naked mole rat is kind of a potent symbol for scientific discovery. And that's what his podcast is about, stories about scientific discoveries and the people behind them. So last February, Ilya was getting ready to publish this 46th episode of his podcast. It was all about what scientists can learn about human behaviour by studying dogs. But then came... Ukraine's darkest day, Russia begins a brutal assault, pounding targets... According to the UNHCR, nearly 8 million Ukrainians are now recorded as refugees across Europe. When Russia invaded, Ilya Kolmanovsky knew immediately that he had to make the most difficult decision of his life. Today on Science Friction, a story of escape as Russia's new Iron Curtain descended. Ilya and I recorded this conversation in the weeks after Russia's invasion of Ukraine began. It's strange, you know, I was uh, trying to make observations of myself, of how my brain works on, on coming up with a decision. And uh, probably uh, the most striking thing I learned is how big can be the gap between conscious understanding that something needs to be done and actually doing it when a lot is at stake. What was at stake was his family's freedom and their safety. Their lives had actually been on edge for a long time, especially since Russia's annexation of the Crimea and eastern Ukraine nine years ago. Uh, even before that, it was clear where all that is headed into an autocracy and there were ass- uh, assassinations and um, all kinds of signs that uh, dictatorship is uh, gaining momentum. Ilya was no stranger to the strong arm of Russian authorities. He regularly attended anti-Putin protests. Uh, things that you consider a duty, sort of a tax you pay, you know, you live in an autocracy but there is a certain freedom that you have to you know express your opinion publicly speak out 
sometimes as a journalist, sometimes as a, just as a citizen. He says he was detained multiple times. And then in January 2013, he was working as a science journalist during the week, a busy life. He was also teaching biology in his spare time on Saturdays at a school for gifted kids. He's that passionate about science. And at the time, he joined his sister at a protest against Putin's oppressive anti-gay propaganda law. They went along as straight allies of the LGBTI community who are heavily persecuted in Russia. It, it went on a video and using that video they found me, they found the school and they um, bombarded the school with letters, fake letters from, as if from parents, like 200 letters. And uh, the principal um, caved in, he, he summoned me to his office and he said that I'm fired. But then it was quite soft back then, so they reinstated me a few days after, after a big um, outcry in the media and parents. And uh, back then, society was able to push back. To a point, because then things got really nasty. What I wasn't prepared for is that mm, Kremlin-based propaganda specialists would start googling and reading each and every story I ever wrote as a journalist trying to make implications of uh, me being a pedophile or approving of. And uh, once I got reinstated and went back to teaching, they hung a big portrait of me on the fence of the school saying that this is a pedophile. Something kind of broke and I um, was not able to teach anymore. The passion that drove him to give up his Saturdays for these kids and that school, it was gone. So uh, I uh, lasted until the end of the school year and I quit. And there was always hope, you know, I was always hopeful that uh, we can gain momentum and uh, overthrow Putin. And in 2011, 2012, suddenly there was real hope because uh, there were massive street protests. And um, massive street protests. Yeah, yeah, there was a big hope. So what shifted? As you say, President Putin and his apparatchiks have been punitive to the extreme for a very long time. Yeah. But are we seeing a, a different tipping point here? People yeah. are, are talking about a new Iron Curtain Yeah. with the, with the bombing of Ukraine. Yeah. Well, um, you have certain expectations from your enemy. Um, let's say you go to a street protest, you uh, are facing riot police and you know there can be really nasty but you watch their movements you try not to get in their way once they catch you you start talking to them so they don't uh, beat you up let's say you know you, you get in the contact eye contact and uh, human contact somehow but then when you wake up to these news that putin has started bombarding shelling major cities in ukraine it creates that immediate feeling of danger to yourself as if riot police just took out machine guns and started to shoot all of a sudden. Is that what you were feeling? Exactly. And for everyone, for everyone around me. It's like, you know, I'm a diver, uh, and when you are uh, scuba diving under ice, you are supposed to be attached with a lifeline to the hole and to, to always, uh, you know, watch your gas and make sure that you have a lot of, a lot of reserve. So living in Putinist Russia for the last eight years, 
for me um, by default meant that I am very and, and my family uh, mobile and ready to leave. Last year, prominent Kremlin critic and opposition leader Alexei Navalny was sentenced to nine years in a maximum security jail. He was already serving time in a prison camp after his arrest in 2021. And in 2020, Navalny copped an awful poison attack with a Soviet-era nerve agent. The Kremlin denied involvement. And after uh, poisoning of Navalny, after jailing of Navalny, the crackdown really sped up very rapidly. On Science Friction, on ABCRN and as podcast, Natasha Mitchell, joined by one of Russia's most popular science journalists and podcasters, Ilya Kolmanovsky. As international sanctions bite, President Putin has been pulling a new iron curtain across the liberties of his own citizens. Uh, 15,000 people have been detained since the beginning of war inside Russia. And it's turning nastier. For instance, uh, there was this sort of a culture that they will not torture or beat people up at police stations in Moscow. But now it's changing. There, is, there are more, more reports of torture and beatings uh, after those uh, detentions. So it means that you cannot speak up at all. You should go quiet on social media, you should not go to any protest. Mm, you should really go quiet. Uh, and as a journalist, as a public um, person, uh, that would be very uncomfortable. And it uh, still wouldn't guarantee safety. So with his wife, both their ex-spouses and families, five of the six children they shared between them, in fact, most of his very large extended family, Ilya fled Russia as President Putin unleashed his deadly assault on Ukraine. Um, all in all, it's 33 people um, who flew to four different countries just where we could find tickets. Among friends, you know, we had people who flew to Mongolia or to Nepal. Kathmandu, uh, just where they could find tickets. Someone went to Maldives because ticket was available and it was cheaper than ticket to Armenia, which is uh, not far away from Russia. But Armenia was the most popular destination. And they're not alone. Russia's invasion of Ukraine triggered an exodus of educated activist Russians. It's hard to say in percentage, but uh, if you if you consider close circle, it's like 90%. So the estimate is that uh, about 100,000 people left the country and these were the most active uh, and most um, modern-minded, let's say, people. Uh, Of course, lots of people are left behind. Lots of people were not able to do that leap. I think the most privileged went. Ilya and his family left everything behind. House, car, possessions, jobs, the guinea pig, the pet snakes. This guy's a science journalist after all. But they worked hard to get their two canine family members out, as we've witnessed for so many Ukrainians carrying pets on their backs across borders. His family flew to a safe haven in Georgia and found schools for their children. An enormous upheaval. And as well, fleeing Russians have had their credit cards frozen and they've experienced anti-Russian sentiment and stigma. 
I mean, Russia is being targeted by sanctions and adjacent countries like Georgia are, are frightened for what the invasion of Ukraine might mean for them next. Could Absolutely. Poland, could Georgia be next? Absolutely. So as a Russian who has fled your country, how are you being received by locals in Georgia? Are you seeing or witnessing stigma against Russians escaping? Yes, yes, understandably, yes. Um um, and the uh, main thing was that there was a sort of a flash mob here in um, on Airbnb and Booking.com not to rent out the Russians. Right. Uh, no matter what your views are. Although it's ironic because all the Russians who fled are actually opposition. But uh, Georgia, for instance, they have deported my brother-in-law, who is a key anchor at the only remaining opposition TV channel, which has been shut down and... Um, they were denounced as traitors and extremists and terrorists. So when he came to Georgia, they deported him. So has he been sent back to Russia? He was able to choose where to fly. So he flew to a different country, to Azerbaijan, another ex-Soviet country. Uh, Ilya, back in Russia, Putin has been talking about the people leaving. So you, as flies as traitors rather than true patriots, as his words, I gather, a natural and necessary cleansing. When I hear language like that, that's the sort of dehumanising language that we've heard again and again during the history of genocide. Does that frighten you? It does frighten me. I'm very much afraid for those who stayed millions of Russians who are facing uh, some very, very harsh times. Of course, he's uh, unwinding a new terror. And um, Ukraine will survive, I very much hope so. It's a great country with a lot of uh, dignity and uh, a lot of will to fight. But uh, about the future of Russia, I'm really not as certain. I think there is one big misunderstanding about his motives. I see that all the time in the Western media that Russia felt cornered, that Russia felt threat from NATO. NATO, sorry. Um, this analysis is all wrong. It's just where you see that Kremlin propaganda has reached its goal. This uh, whole mindset implies that Kremlin has got these strategic geopolitical interests. And this is all wrong because the only interest that is there are, is an interest in, of one man staying in power as long as he can. And he needs things like this war to solidify his rule and to solidify his dictatorship. Uh, war is a pretext and uh, main events will happen inside Russia. Inside Russia, Kremlin-driven disinformation campaigns about the invasion of Ukraine run rife. Russia also banned Meta, the company that owns Facebook and Instagram, calling it an extremist organisation. Many Russians use VPNs, or virtual private networks, to access international news websites and get around social media blocks. In fact, the demand for VPNs has reportedly skyrocketed since the invasion. But as a science journalist, Ilya understands more than most how even rational minds under siege can come to deny facts. Because mm, you're witnessing all kinds of uh, cognitive strat strategies which uh, people's brains is using to protect them from cognitive uh, dissonance, let's say, uh, from um, 
it's a it's really a huge trauma to wake up to your country being really a Nazi country to an being aggressor. really an aggressor mm-hmm. and committing those horrible crimes so it's surprising to what length people might go to call white black and vice versa to believe propaganda but the nature of of disinformation is that it can sow seeds of doubt even even in those who fully understand the nature of a of a an authoritarian state yeah you you see that all the time yeah you're a passionate science communicator science journalist biologist the history of Russian science has been very interesting. It's both served the state, and I think of the Russian geneticist Lysenko, who disastrously headed up the Soviet agriculture program under Stalin in the 30s, and his very weird efforts and theories and ideas and attempts to so-called modernise agriculture resulted in mass death, mass famine. But, of course, scientists in Russia have been extremely important in resisting state oppression over generations, haven't they, in fighting for free speech. How do you reflect on that legacy? Yeah, um, there is a legacy. Maybe most um, famous example is a Nobel Prize winner, Andrei Sakharov, who worked on hydrogen bomb and then later became a leader of dissident resistance uh, in the 70s and 80s one of the masterminds behind uh, Russia, Russia's d- democracy in, in uh, late 80s, early 90s. Last year, thousands of eminent Russian scientists signed an open letter against the Russian government's aggression. The newspaper that organised that anti-war letter, the only independent newspaper for scientists in Russia, was subsequently declared a foreign agent by the government. Government tried to uh, instigate another letter, which would be pro-war. And last I checked, it had less than a dozen signatures. <laughs> I think it's very important that any public figure speaks up. And for Russians, lots of scientists are well-known and respected. And it does bring a lot to counter propaganda. You know, 80 years ago, Nazis would use some really simple pretexts to attack but nowadays you cannot sell your propaganda without let's say stories of bioweapon being discovered propaganda needs to be fancy uh so as you probably heard russians have discovered quote unquote i don't know 45 biolabs uh in ukraine and by the way 10 such biolabs in kazakhstan and five in georgia And this ranking, 45, 10, and 5, uh, is a sort of order in which these countries should be prepared to face Putin's aggression. There was, by the way, a proposition right now to hit Georgian biolab with a rocket uh, uh, from a particular security advisor in Russia. It um, became publicized. These are not... Biological weapon laboratories, though these are absolutely not. They are monitoring pathogens, and they are sponsored by Americans. That's um, good news because we should be monitoring pathogens. This is a very, very primitive propaganda, which um, targeting people who are just unable to put two and two together. So now Putin and his uh, workers are announcing that. 
those biolabs, evil Ukrainians have been developing weapon which is able to selectively kill Russian ethnic. So it's just complete lies. And use birds and bats to spread those. Scientists are the ones who are speaking up against such propaganda. So how do you see your role? How determined are you to, to keep putting your popular science podcast out to the world, keep broadcasting presentations to public audiences, to children, Russian-speaking children around the world, even though your life has been turned upside down in recent weeks? What, is that important to you to do? Yes, I'm very willing to continue. Uh, it's actually quite soothing. Uh, for now, I uh, do every weekend. I do open free lectures uh, for families. Um, it, at, at the beginning, I didn't know how to start doing it. You know, to talk about birds and how they fly uh, when people's homes are being destroyed and their dear ones' lives are being taken. To talk about I don't know dogs' intellect it feels inappropriate. Also, I was speechless and it was hard to start doing anything publicly as a Russian because you can say that it was not in my name as many times as you wish, but the fact is still there that this is Russian government and you're carrying a Russian passport and you've been paying taxes. But somehow in several weeks, as I developed a lot of communication with Ukrainian families, uh, they have convinced me that I should continue and that they need those public lectures. Some people are joining from shelters or between the bombings or in evacuation or wherever they are. And also Russian families scattered all over the globe now are also joining these lectures. So we did one last uh, Sunday on bird flight and I use a chicken from a store to show them how flight muscles work. And then I boiled it and made a soup out of it for my family. <laughs> and uh, that, that I do that. And also I want to continue to do my podcast. So maybe for a while I will be focused more on Ukraine. For instance, Ukraine science. There are people in cities who are taking care of museum collections, digitizing and uploading scans to protect collections in case uh, the invaders will uh, capture or damage them. There are people who are taking care of their animals. I don't know, bat research center, where they've got dozens of hibernating bats. So those scientists cannot flee their cities. They cannot evacuate themselves uh, because they need to take care of the animals. Right now, I'm working on an episode on a brilliant young Ukrainian scientist and teacher who died uh, defending her city. Mathematician. Yeah, mathematician, programmer, and educator, Yulia Zdanovskaya. And um, I've been talking to her friends, generally uh, trying to get to know more about her generation of intellectuals in Ukraine. What was it like uh, growing up? She was 20, 21 when she got killed. It must be a very strange time for you, the, the last episode you released was about what we can learn about ourselves by studying dogs. And you'd made the show before the hostilities started in Ukraine. And the way you described it in the show notes was 
You know, we recorded this episode when scientific discoveries and the people who make them were still an important part of our lives. Now everything has changed. But uh, we decided to release the episode because someone will surely enjoy it. And now you are, as a science journalist, feeling compelled to report on this war. Yeah. You have an, an enormous platform. You have over 50,000 followers on a Telegram channel for your podcast. You podcast to Russian language speakers all over the world. What influence do you hope that you might have as a, as a public figure, as a science communicator, as a, as a popular uh, journalist? Well, I hope to, to deliver truth about war. You know, probably uh, a vast majority of Russians don't support this war. But they're just afraid in participating in polls, first of all. So you cannot trust polls. Um, so um, uh, a lot of people are left without hope and thinking that a majority supports war. So it's really important to get a confirmation of your beliefs and uh, see that a lot of people think like you. So they, let's say, read what I publish or listen to a podcast and they know that they're among many, many other people, that they're among the audience of this podcast who have uh, maintained sort of a sane worldview. Thank you so much for joining me. Thank you, Natasha. The tenacious science journalist, activist, Dr. Ilya Kolmanovsky. His incredibly popular podcast is called Goloi Zemlikop, Naked Mole Rat. And you can find out more about that on the Science Friction website. And uh, while you're there, share our podcast with your friends. Science Friction is produced by me and Lisa Needham. You can find me over on Twitter at Natasha Mitchell. Take care. I'll catch you next time. Bye. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.